1: Hello and welcome, or rather, welcome back, I suppose, to uh, John Richardson and the Future Noughts. This is episode 12. There have been some huge changes um, globally, but none here. So it's welcome back to Ed Gillespie. (laughs) Hello. And Mark Stevenson. Greetings. Hello, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hello. (laughs) It's lovely to be back. Yes. Uh, It's been a while. Well, everything got all
0: sorted, didn't it? So we had a little breather. Just, we can have some time off. Everything's tickety boo. I know it's just strange if you look out at the world, you think there's just nothing to talk about or change. Yeah. yeah. So well, we might as well just have a little rest.
2: Yeah, yeah. We don't need we don't need to do that do this do this anymore because because you know we've got what an excellent prime minister, mm-hmm. and uh, there's no violence has ended. Um, climate
1: climate on on target for all that yeah absolutely they're gonna be too cold if anything now isn't it yeah yeah and And the last report i saw said hang on
2: and meet the richardson's has been commissioned for another two series i mean
1: how how much how much better can the world get i know if if anything is a gift to uh, a a world which finally has a future it's a sitcom where a man repeatedly says i wish i was dead
0: Well, it's been, you know, it's actually been three months since we did episode of this, the Ukraine special, So I think we're now at the end of March. So I was starting to think about this podcast as like an unfinished masterpiece, uh, you know, a bit like the Sagrada Familia. It's like, yes. Yeah, and hopefully that one of us wasn't going to die before we completed series three. Right. Okay. A lot of pressure on this episode now,
1: isn't there? <laughs> yeah. Have they been tinkering away at for three months? Yes. We're joined by Michael Paulin, aren't we? Yes, we are. And we're discussing the future of systems. What's a system? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't
2: know. We're talking about the, there's a great quote by, uh, we may have mentioned before, by John Muir, uh, the ecologist, um, who said um, something like, when you pick at anything in the universe, you find it's hitched to absolutely everything else. So what we're kind of talking about is the interplay of stuff and how Michael, you know, started off in one area which is architecture which is very famous but has now come to you know a much more systemic view of how to how to do change and so yeah it's about the it's about how everything's interconnected and you know war in ukraine covid you know these are symptoms of our interconnectedness and fragility and how our systems aren't working and we're going to talk about how we might um think about that differently to uh, fix the shit show
0: i think it's also it's also worth noting that the the, when we recorded this interview we were mark and i were fresh from the brit awards the night before so uh, if there's a slight huskiness to our voices it's to do Mm. with us screaming like teenage girls uh, at the best of british pop music Oh,
1: who's gonna get the ice cream? So that's
0: me. Sorry. Oh, that's
1: beautiful. <laughs> that that's staying in. That you can't cut the sound of an ice cream van. You fucking can. I I, I
2: ate them. I eat, I, yeah. They're so oppressed. They're so loud and they're always slightly out of tune and they're always slightly distorted. It's like, come on, technology's evolved. You could do the ice cream van thing a lot better than that. But no, they, they resolutely have not moved with the times. Like, and that ice cream van, it's our local bloody ice cream van. I, you know, and, and I was out with the kids the other day in the park. It's a very warm day. I thought today is definitely an ice cream day. The little boys wanted an ice cream, went up to the ice cream van, ordered some ice creams, got me card out, says, oh, we don't accept cards, only take cash. How can you run an ice cream business without, you know, disappointed in my children so i so fuck him quite frankly he's too old school and he needs to be replaced <laughs> by a much more modern up to date ice cream experience it needs to improve the audio
0: and improve the e-commerce yeah. Yeah. what would, what would, what would a prog rock ice cream van tune sound like would it be like you know oh, employed ama- <laughs> the walls it would be amazing it would be amazing
2: said, actually i've been using prog rock more and more in my in my keynote speeches recently i, I was recently asked to go and talk to the heads of creative itv um, and um, I put up a quote by Roger Waters from The Wall, 1979, where he sang, we have got 13 channels of shit on the TV to choose from. And I said, uh, but it's not 13, is it? It's 300 and you're making it all. And then after he left Fink Floyd, he did a solo album called Amused to Death. And that's what you're doing, is you're just avoiding the planetary emergency and making a whole bunch of shit shows that we don't really need to watch whilst, whilst encouraging mass consumerism. Fuck you, basically, is what I said to them. And uh, it seems to have gone quite well, because they've invited me in to talk about strategy, which is nice.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, it's a big uh, a big couple of minutes for the John Riston and the Futronauts podcast there. In case you missed it, apologies for all the stuff that's coming up on ITV that you don't want to watch. And when you're getting your ice creams delivered by drone by Jeff Bezos, then you've got this sad bastard to thank as well for killing the Indian- independent ice cream van industry <laughs> what a rant that was
0: yeah <laughs> de- de- delivered by drone to the tune of king crimson <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: here's our chat with uh, michael and we'll see you on the other side
2: So it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Michael Paulin, my good friend. Uh, Now, Michael, you should understand that Ed and I compete on our introductions. He's very diligent. He writes them out beforehand and you can hear that he's spent quite a lot of time crafting them. I tend to be more off the cuff. So this will be my honest, perhaps unprofessional interpretation of you. But I would say that Michael is one of the most important systems thinkers that we have um, in the UK and indeed the world at the moment. Um, If you know anything about architecture, you've probably heard his name. He's probably most famous for being the main guy behind the team that turned an old quarry into something we now call the Eden Project. But he's much more than an architect. He really is a systems thinker, a guy who understands the interplay of the natural world, of our Built environment of our supply chains, of our politics. He really tries to think about how we intervene in all these systems to try and make our world more regenerative. And he summed all that up in um, a recent book, which he's co written with his uh, colleague Sarah Ichioka. And it's called Flourish design paradigms for our planetary emergency. Um, this is Michael's second book. His first book is actually the most popular book that his publisher has ever, uh, ever had. So we, we have high hopes for this one. Basically, you know, in this book, we're looking at, you know what does it take to restore the balance in our world? So, so how do we get to these regenerative design principles that uh, not only sort of stop the damage we're doing, but start to repair uh, some of the damage that we've done? Um, Michael is, I think, a genius. Um, he's also very humble as you will hear when you start speaking soon. And in fact, that's enough of me. I'm gonna hand over now to uh, to Michael Pollan, uh, my great friend and a wonderful, wonderful thinker. Welcome to the show, Michael.
3: That sounded pretty professional to me, Mark. I I, I, hugely generous. Thank you, thank you. Uh, the bit about um, genius is 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 too kind, and I don't mean that in the sort of normal British way, but but quite literally, because I subscribe to Brian Eno's view that um, what we want is seniors, so actually, ideas emerge from a from a whole scene, and that that's definitely true of the kind of stuff I do. And and I should say that you know a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today was developed with my co-author Sarah Ichioka. So you know, equal credit to her for for all the good bits, and all the inarticulate bits will be uh, down to me alone.
2: There you go. I told you he was ridiculously humble, <laughs> um, Michael. You really do have to stop stop this. It's it's no good for any of us that you're so you're so
3: shy. All right. All right. Thank you, thank you. That was a very generous introduction. Thank
1: you. Can I assume that Sarah knows Mark and Ed too well to come on this podcast? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Sarah's based in Singapore, so timing-wise, it was, it was just more difficult. So.
1: I, th- I think that time zone is exactly the sort of, that's the time difference I need for most of my jokes to land, to be honest. Somewhere <laughs> that, about 8 to 12 hours. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it takes me a few days to get your jokes, John. Yeah, exactly. I've had gigs where I've been home and the audience have thought, you know what, actually, that was brilliant. And I should have enjoyed that a lot more.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, uh, what's great about having Michael on the show is that um, he's probably going to pull together quite a few other things we've covered on the show. So you'll hear him referencing, you know, probably stuff like John Alexander's citizenship. Um, some big systems thinking stuff that we've talked about say with people like Margaret Hefferman so yeah, uh, and actually I think uh, you, you're a bit of a fan of the, the podcast I, I believe that you've you, you actually are one of our listeners as well Michael
3: is is that true? I think I've listened to every episode and yeah really enjoyed the movie wow so that's more really than I've listened to, to. <laughs> <laughs> anyway
2: anyway so michael it's lovely to have you onto the show um you'll know roughly what this is all about so um so shall we shall we get into it shall we shall we start
3: well i i, I tend not to swear in a public forum so i was a bit anxious about coming on this show that uh, you know maybe my <laughs> swearing wouldn't be uh, up to scratch and um it, it limits my ability to talk about people like Boris Johnson, if I, if I can't yeah. we'll, we'll
0: try and make up for that. We'll try and redress. <laughs> All bonus. right. All right.
3: You, you go ahead.
2: All right. So let's get into the show proper. Michael, as a long term listener of the show, you will know the format, which is we start off with um, uh, how fucked are we? And then we go into how do we get this fucked? And then uh, how do we unfuck ourselves? And now uh, let's talk about the built environment, for instance, which is kind of where you started. You know, if we look at that, you know, so I think 39% of emissions, for instance, are, are down to, to, to the built environment. And we have an um, extraordinarily wasteful way of going about building things and, and, and maintaining them. So really, when you look at the built environment,
3: which is one of our biggest impacts on the planet, how,
2: how fucked are we? are we? Are we totally fucked?
3: well the built environment is huge so it's not just that 39 percent, but there's also the the transport emissions and and also you know all the emissions associated with the way we live which is to quite a large extent influenced by the way the built environment is is designed and so I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to get through this um first bit of, of how effed are we um as quickly as possible and, and spend a bit more time on how we got into this mess and, and most of the time talking about how we get out of it but you know to answer your question hang on a minute as a guest you yeah. don't get to decide the format of the show that,
2: <laughs> that's not the deal
3: all right all right
2: all right i love you michael but you know you can
1: be a little bit uh you know a little bit bold and uh, just back in your box really. <laughs> Uh, Someone who's listened to all episodes is quite within their rights to say, I've listened to all of them and I think, let's talk less about the depressing stuff and maybe (laughs) tell the listeners about how things are going to
3: get better.
0: Yeah, but that's that's our right to wallow, isn't it? A little bit.
3: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right, you, you lead it how you want to. So the first thing, we are already in deep trouble and if we carry on as we are, then we are well and truly effed. Um, and I'm actually haunted by this illustration that was in Roman Kriznarek's book, The Good Ancestor, where he shows three pathways for civilization. There's the, the breakdown pathway, which is pretty obvious. And then there's the transformation pathway, which is obviously the one we want to get on But the really worrying one is the reform pathway, because that, that's the pathway in, in which governments and business leaders do just enough to persuade enough people that they're taking realistic action when, in reality, that action is is nowhere near enough, and, and all it does is is defer the the point of collapse and that is so clearly the the one we're on and I think that one of the really worrying things about the moment, the present moment, is that there are a lot of powerful players who want you to believe that it'll be enough to get to to net zero and we don't really need to change anything particularly fundamental about the system and what to give you a sense of of you know, how messed up the system is the, the cambridge academic julian Allwood reviewed the uk government's plans for net zero and concluded that they have as much chance of working as magic beans fertilized with unicorns blood
2: <laughs> Wow, well, it doesn't sound like yeah. academic speak that is he a proper academic really doesn't
3: oh yeah, yeah lots of metrics okay, you know it's 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 is robust just, uh, just
2: is you concluding a report with sort of reference to mythical creatures as a serious cambridge academic's mm. not gonna <laughs> it's not going to deliver a huge amount of confidence. Um, I mean, the point's well made. I mean, we've had Client Earth on this show for who I'm an ambassador, and we've just taken the British government to court because its net zero strategy is completely out of step with
3: its own law on net zero. <laughs> really, I, I loved that episode. I really loved that episode. By the way, particularly the bit where James Thornton, Thornton um, took the Polish energy company to court yes. for saying if you carry on like this you're going to trash our 30 euro investment but anyway coming back to how messed up are we i think the the other problem at the moment is the debate is almost exclusively focused on on zero carbon and that you know when i say that i wouldn't be surprised if quite a lot of listeners respond by thinking well, well what else could be as important as that and the 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 point is that that is going to uh, occlude a number of other really important issues like biodiversity loss, desertification, managing water, resource depletion, and and particularly toxins. Did you know that the European male sperm count has declined 50 to 60% since 1973? So we, if that carries on, you know, we, we'll be sterile as a species long before we reach zero carbon, and yet no one is talking about this. My, my wife's
1: talking about it quite a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, she's on it a lot. I had to take bee pollen when we were trying to conceive our daughter, and we... We're not allowed to have any plastics that we cook in anymore. She threw away all my lovely spatulas quite recently. I know we're here to talk about buildings and systems, but I I mourn those spatulas. (laughs) So in in terms of the built environment, are you implying that that, that process is leading to our uh, decline in fertility as well.
3: Well, you know, a lot of it is to do with the presence of, of toxins in the environment in our homes and the materials we use, I mean, yes. particularly on sperm count. The finger of blame has pointed towards plastics manufacturing and endocrine disruptors and so on. And uh, there's an amusing story that Michael Braungart tells. So he's the chemist who is one half of the, the pair that wrote Cradle to Cradle. And he, he talked about meeting George W. Bush, and, and his opening question was, you know, "Why are you looking for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq when there are WMDs in every American home?" Wow. Yes. Well,
1: I, I already know that my wife is going to be the the biggest fan of this episode of the podcast because this is she, she is just infuriated at how little we talk about it and. You know how little we talk about the toxins that the home of as the biggest polluter that we face when we do you know we talk a fair bit about diet now but we don't talk about the air you breathe inside mm. your own home
2: so michael i know that you are actually about to do a, a big refurb on your own home um are you finding yourself sort of stripping out loads of toxins and, and trying to put in sort of better materials is that easy to do can, can <laughs> it be done
3: well we're about to so yeah we're, we're about to do a a major refurb and we planning to use as far as possible um, natural materials without synthetic paints and finishes and so on, because that's where a lot of it comes from. Um, a lot of it also comes from fire retardants in furniture and carpets and, and so on. So it, the, the built environment needs a major rethink and, and a, a rethink that goes beyond just carbon and actually looks at it in systemic terms.
1: And this is another example, of course, of, you know, as, you know, we just mentioned food, it's, it's for those with the deepest pockets to be able to make those changes. I guess when we're talking about the affordable homes that we're building and the, the future of office blocks or whatever we're building, it, it's going to be the cheapest materials put into those environments.
3: Yeah, yeah, there, there is that issue. And, and actually kind of moving beyond homes to have broader infrastructure, which I would still count as part of the, the built environment. Mm. Charles Eisenstein makes a really important point about um, the focus on on carbon being problematic. And and the example he gives is um, that in a lot of forests in the United States, it was established that something like 50% of the nitrogen in those forests had come from the oceans. And and, and that nitrogen would have uh, come up the rivers in massive flows of salmon that were eaten by bears and eagles and then pooped out into the forests and taken up uh, by the trees, Now, when someone proposes uh, to put a hydroelectric dam across that river, it'd be easy to think, well, that's great from a zero carbon perspective. But what that has done, mainly historically, is that it blocks that flow of nitrogen. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that those forests then became much more susceptible to forest fires. So it weakens the ecosystem. So in overall carbon terms if you take a a really narrow focus on carbon, it can result in a much bigger carbon problem. Mm.
2: And so this place to your journey is increasingly as a systems thinker as opposed to uh, an architect or a biomimicry expert. Um, You told me um, a story in the pub the other day, which I found really arresting, was where you said, um, you know, I've spent ages trying to build these sustainable buildings and I've had some success at doing it. but, But really what I'm doing is just creating these kind of, possible exemplars or failing to get these exemplars so And actually after all this time of sort of banging on about biomimicry and climate change and the, and the built environment, um, I've kind of feel that I've got no way. I mean, you always said to me that you, you felt that the, the last 20 years of your career had been a bit of a waste, which I think is a bit, think is a bit harsh, but uh, that's what's led you to sort of mm. rethink the way you go about doing things. And, um, and also a lot of the, the thinking on, on much more wider mm. systems is included in in this book. Maybe you can talk about, you know, what you think has gone wrong yeah. for the last twenty or thirty years, and, and where you are now, and and the ways of thinking that you've you've started to deploy more recently that you that you cover in the book. That can help us yeah. um, think about, you know, um, where we need to go uh, and what we need to do. Mm. Because because I think it's it, it it is deeply unfair that you should say <laughs> that the last uh, thirty years of your career uh have not been have not been a worthwhile i mean you are an incredibly famous architect and uh I, I was actually at a meeting with you today um where the people in the room were almost sort of apoplectic with joy that they could touch the hem of the great michael Paulin. so you've obviously been doing something right but but for somebody who has done so many things right for you to think actually this is not nearly 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 enough and we have to change things more yeah i'm really interested yeah. to, well, to, to, to talk about that and 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 the genesis of the book that,
3: that is that's definitely one of the things that that led to sarah and i writing this book uh, because it, you know it became clear in 2018 when the ipcc issued their latest well at the time latest report that That just showed that 30 years of sustainability had not got us anywhere near where we needed to be, and uh, it it provoked a lot of people to do some really deep thinking, including Sarah and I, and and a lot of my colleagues involved in Architects Declare, which maybe we can come on to as well. And um, you know, I've I've I became an environmentalist when I was 13, so I've been following the debate for about 40 years, and I've seen the movement engage in endless self-criticism about how best to communicate. You know, Have campaigns and initiative been too positive or too negative, too angry or too passive, too obstructive or too accommodating? And I don't think any of those really get to the heart of the problem. And I think there's a, there's a deeper pattern underlying this, uh, which is the adaptive cycle model, uh, which I'd, I'd like to talk about. And, and that helps explain something that really puzzled me for a while, which is why has it got more difficult to do a deep green building over the last 15 years? I mean, just in in some ways it makes no sense. In my view, the high watermark of sustainability in UK architecture was a project called BEDZED in 2002 and another one that followed called One Brighton. Uh, And both of those were designed to a one planet eco footprint. And that should have become the norm for all housing schemes that followed and it didn't. So what the hell's going on? How could it be more difficult to do a green building now, given all the data on climate breakdown and biodiversity loss? So I think the adaptive cycle model does uh, provide an explanation for this. So this was a a model uh, developed by scientists called Holling and Gunderson, and it it was an explanation of, of how ecosystems develop over time. So their theory was that there are four phases, growth, consolidation, release and renewal. So, as an example, imagine you know, a bare patch of ground after a landslide. What, what you'd find is you'd, you'd, you'd quickly have pioneer species appearing and waves of colonising plants. So, th- so that's the growth phase, and eventually it would turn into a climax ecosystem, like say oak woodland. That's the consolidation phase. And in the, the early growth phase, the system responds to external changes by adapting to them. But as it moves into the consolidation phase, it becomes more and more resistant to change. So it responds to external change by resisting it. And, and then eventually it becomes very fragile. And, and so you can have a forest fire um, or if it, um, you can have an insect infestation that would create the release phase. And the whole thing would break down and then go into uh, renewal and a new, potentially very different growth phase. And what Holling and Gunderson did is that they also applied this to social and technological systems. So if you take an example of, say, the American car industry, well, in the early stages, you know, there was a growth phase after Henry Ford invented the Model T and so on. And then it gradually became more and more dominated by a few small players that were increasingly resistant to change. And the first release phase was the 1970s oil crisis, where all of a sudden um, it, it disrupted the whole thing. They lost a lot of market share to Japanese manufacturers who were making much more efficient cars. And so then it went back into kind of reorganization and a a new growth phase. And in many ways, it went back to its old bad ways. So that when the next release phase came along, which was the 2007-2008 financial crisis, what Obama did was that he just bailed them out. But it would have been much more courageous if, if he'd said, sorry, you're you're not well adapted to the present situation i'm going to give this money to a a, a kind of richer ecosystem of smaller more innovative players and i think it also works across scales of time so if you if you look at the whole industrial age of of humankind then the early the first couple of hundred years was a growth phase and then from the 1970s to the present day with the era of neoliberalism Governments became more and more closely connected with funders and the media, and it became more and more resistant to change. And I think it's uh, reasonable to assume that that would result in a a kind of talent drain of of politicians so that you get to a system that is increasingly um, stuck in its ways. And I think that is where we are at. And what we need to do in systemic terms is we need to bring about a tipping point.
2: So you introduced me to this uh, idea of, of some thinking from from ecosystems theory, which was that when a new organism arrives into an ecosystem, it has to adapt to enable to establish itself. But once it gets to a position of uh, stability or power or influence um, in that environment, what it then does is it starts to try and resist change. So the thing that made it successful in the first place is now the thing that it's desperately trying yeah. not to do. It's become kind kind of comfortable. And I guess what you're saying is we're seeing that now sort of at a societal level in that, you know, the Industrial Revolution and all the invention and and, and horror and war that came from that. That was all kind of adapting to get to a position of power. And now we're stuck trying to resist change um, in order to maintain our exactly. position.
3: Yeah. It's a system desperate to preserve itself.
2: But having said all that, I mean, I think we are seeing the ends of that now. I mean, if you look at some of the narratives that are coming out of uh, various think tanks and governments and, and, and investors even that, that I think we may be reaching a, you know, the end of that story, don't mm. you think?
3: Yeah, well, I think there's, there's lots of evidence to suggest that, that we're very close to that. So um, as Sarah and I mentioned in the book, you know, when, when a newspaper as established as the Financial Times starts publishing a whole series of articles questioning the, the basis of conventional capitalism, I think that's, that's a pretty good sign. Uh, i I would even um, make a positive interpretation of, of the way that uh, Greta Thunberg was uh, subjected to some horrible trolling uh, because it was mainly from a, a very particular demographic and and if you if you look at most of the major social changes in history, the last bastion of resistance has been angry old white guys who are indignant about losing their privileges. And as far as I can see, that those were the only people left who were actually criticising Greta Thunberg. Mm-hmm. So m- moving on to how how do we how do we change this? Uh, I think it's absolutely essential that that we have a transformation in our ideas of agency, our capacity to bring about change, and that's why we made that the first chapter in our book. So so we we call the chapter Possibilism, and the idea there is that. It's, it's not enough to just be optimistic or pessimistic because both of those positions imply a, a sense of inevitability about the future, and, and it's really not inevitable. And and it was Hans Rosling that, that um, I think, coined the term possibilism. And his point there was that we should decide on the future we want and then we should set about creating it.
0: That point, though, Michael, is really interesting because, I mean, there's a quote you put in the book from um, Murray Bookchin saying, you know, if we don't do the impossible then we end up faced with the unthinkable. And that really struck a chord with me, because I think that possibilism is that middle way. I think, you know, I share all of your frustrations and the particular epiphany of the 2018 IPCC report, you know, which totally knocked me for six, you know, having been one of those communicators that you alluded to in terms of trying to frame environmental messaging for for 20 years. And I, th- I think what I really love about the argument you set out in the book is how you know a genuinely authentically regenerative type of approach takes us you know radically beyond um you know the sort of tired old idea of sustainability because otherwise we're just asking ourselves a question you know what exactly are we sustaining here um and and I, and I think you know just bring it slightly back to the built environment stuff I mean the work that Mark and I have done. Um, with some of the sort of big big builders, which I'm sure you've you know you've been equally frustrated with, is like everything they're building now is still not fit for purpose, is it? You know, and you mentioned Bedstead f- from twenty years ago, but I- I've had this argument on my local parish council. I said every house that we build that is not net zero and is not designed in a way with materials which are enabling a greater flourishing of biodiversity at the same time and facilitating sustainable lifestyles you know, that's not an investment, that's a cost. And it's a cost that we're going to have to keep on paying back as we try and get towards this this, this better world, which we know in our hearts is possible, uh, as Charles Eisenstein talks about. And I think the the question that then comes out is like, where where does the break come from? Is it is it a break of the heart? Is it a break of the mind? Is it a tuning into the viscera of the gut? Where does where does the possibilism emerge, do you think, in people's imaginations? I think um you know the the way that we frame
3: subjects is is absolutely crucial. The the whole paradigm of um, sustainability is, is starting to look flawed. And, and by paradigm, I mean a kind of widely shared idea or, or story or, or view, or worldview that, that's shared across society. And and actually, you know, a key starting point for Sarah and I in the book was Danella Meadows' leverage points. And I know you're all a fan of, of Dan- Danella Meadows, so, so you're probably, um, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with what I'm about to say. So in that essay, she, she argues that because systems are complex, it's not always obvious where to intervene in the system. And, and, and the most influential way to intervene in a system is at the level of the paradigm. And, and that's what we've really tried to do in this book. So, so overall, we're making the case for a shift from a sustainability paradigm to one of regenerative design. And just as you were saying there, Ed, you know, the, one of the big flaws of sustainability is the implication that the best we can aspire to is Mm. to be less bad and that's just nowhere near good enough you know we've got to get to the point where we are above this line of neutrality and we're actually starting to have a net positive impact and i'm not suggesting that's going to be easy and 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 it's no exaggeration to say that that will be a, a kind of turning point in human civilization. And it's a turning point that we've got to get to as, as quickly
0: as possible. And that's that symbiogenesis point that you make, isn't it? I mean, there's a, it's a lovely word, um, you know, and, and I, I, like, I like a bit of jargon, but, you know, that not just living together, but building together, which is what? A healthy natural system does doesn't it when you talk about your adaptive cycle model you know when 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 we're growing together we're increasing we are increasing complexity and we are increasing diversity and we're also increasing resilience but you know we we don't see that right now do we you know this idea of symbiogenesis it it feels sort of like it's coming from outer space uh, (laughs) at the moment
3: yeah. So j- just to explain, symbiogenesis was a term coined by Lynn Margulis, the evolutionary biologist. And, and her discovery was that organisms that live symbiotically, as they evolve, new structures come into being that further enhance that symbiosis. And so Sarah and I have have looked at what this would mean for the built environment. And the way the built environment is organized is, to a large extent, a, a reflection of our worldview. And so if we see ourselves as isolated individuals in a competitive kind of survival-of-the-fittest zero-sum game, then that is is very likely to manifest itself in a built form with lots of isolated buildings and people living in, in disconnected uh, lives. And if we flip that and, and look at how we could create symbiogenesis... Then there's a, a real potential that we could start to create a, a radically better quality of, of life, and, and this is, I think, very much at the heart of ideas like the, the fifteen-minute city, where um, if you if you uh, design a city or, or retrofit a city so that people um, live more connected lives and can actually access everything they need within a fifteen-minute walk or, or cycle, then it's actually better in. Just about every respect, people use less energy, less resources. They're much more socially connected. They've got more time. They've got more time. Yeah, and they will live longer. I'm sure you're familiar with the statistic about how much loneliness takes off your life in terms of life years. It's it's shocking.
1: How possible is that in terms of retrofitting then? Because we've talked before about the sort of clash between cities as actually potentially very infi- efficient ways for us to live close together and, and sharing the things we need or actually huge polluting concrete jungles. How possible is it to retrofit? And if difficult, how do we go about crafting the alternative?
3: Well, I, I mean, I think it is it's completely possible and there are lots of places where that is happening. So the, the mayor of Paris and Hidalgo um, is is making that you know part of her policy you know, there's, there's a lot more going on at the city level than there is at, at national levels. And mm. um, I think that's because there there seems to be a, a, a better kind of healthy camaraderie between city leaders than there is between national leaders. There seems to be a very sort of unhealthy and competitive and obstructive uh, kind of, Macho attitude between national leaders, whereas cities all want to sort of positively outdo each other in terms of creating better public transport, improve public realm um, ideas like the fifteen-minute city and so on.
1: I guess yeah, that's a really interesting point. It's not one we've discussed before, but there is a there's almost a sexiness to I guess the mayor of Swindon saying what can we learn from Paris and Madrid in a way that we don't feel comfortable as Britain saying. What have we got wrong, and what do we need to learn from other countries?
3: Yeah, I don't know if you've seen Michael Moore's film "Where to Invade Next," uh, but <laughs> do you know that one? It's, uh, for me, it's one of his best films because I'm hoping
1: this isn't off the back of the reference to Swindon. Because
3: <laughs> well. well, well, the, the comic setup at the beginning of the film is that he was called in to to the. Um, the White House and uh, the president admitted that the country is completely screwed up and uh, they want him to go and uh, travel to other countries, uh, find their best ideas and then bring them back to the US. So he he goes to countries that do particular things extremely well. So he goes to Finland to look at their education system. He goes to um, Italy to see um, how they managed to give people such a good way. Uh, uh, work-life balance in terms of their time off. He goes to Norway and, and finds out how they um, achieve one-eighth of the recidivism rate for, for prisoners. He goes to Iceland to, to see just why it's um, one of the, the best places in the world to be a woman. And for me, it's a it's a really positive and, and energising Uh, example of what we should be doing more, you know, seeing who does things really well and and implementing those ideas as quickly as possible.
1: Absolutely. And it's the way, you know, to go back to saying that the the most recent sort of positive architecture was 20 years ago in terms of that way of living. I mean, that was centuries ago, wasn't it? That the idea of opening up channels of travel was to share knowledge and information.
0: Yeah. I mean, so much of your work, Michael, what I was also struck by um, in sort of delving into the book, is, is so much of this seems to come down to the sort of pursuit of beauty in its roundest sense, you know, so it's not just the visual conceptual stuff of of the way that we shape and fashion the built environment around us, but it's that alignment with the grain of nature. It's it's learning, you know, through the biomimicry and and this kind of incredible lab that nature has had running for billions of years um, and has been trialing and experimenting all of these things. And there's also something about when you create a building which has been inspired by that natural architecture, isn't there? There's a different feel to those places. And, you know, that can't help but be inspiring and touching to people emotionally, can it? Yeah, 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 you're absolutely right. And and that
3: touches on uh, the the discipline of of biophilia. I mean, we we don't say a lot about biophilia, but it is... it is connected with, with this kind of psychological dimension that you're alluding to there, Ed, which is that because we evolved in direct contact with nature, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we are happier, healthier, and more productive if we're in regular contact with nature. And then also the, the sort of deeper principles of biomimicry that we talk about are, are, are that ultimately we need to overcome our separation from, from the natural world. And learn how we can integrate everything we do into the broader web of life, and that's why biomimicry is such a powerful discipline. Because by looking at how ecosystems function, by looking at how nature has evolved the most amazing, amazingly efficient structures, and how biology has evolved to, to make just about everything it needs from from four. Uh, main elements of carbon, ho- oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen. We can learn a huge amount from all those things in rethinking the way we make things, how we integrate those into our systems and how those systems make up our cities.
1: So I'd love to talk just briefly more. It was a few minutes ago we talked about the individual feeling involved and empowered to be part of this this change. How does that look for, for our listeners?
3: Yeah, so one of the people we refer to. And we, we refer to loads of people in the book. So, you know, in many ways, we're, we're sort of standing on the shoulders of giants and trying to integrate those ideas into consistent thesis. One of the people we we talk about is Elizabeth Ayana Johnson. And she recommends that people consider their own potential in, in terms of a Venn diagram, which consists of you know, what you're good at, what you enjoy, and what needs to be done. And if you can find the sweet spot in that Venn diagram, then that's where you can probably find your greatest effectiveness. And then we also concur with um, Naomi Klein's view that um, you know when she's asked, what can I do as an individual? She says, well, the first thing is stop thinking of yourself as an individual. Hmm. So you're likely to be far more influential and, and really come into your, your full capacity as a possibilist if you connect up with others. So if you work in a company, try and transform that company. If you're a senior within a company, then try and transform your institution. If you're the head of an institution, then team up with other institutions and try and shift the whole narrative of society and so on. So so really, it is about all of us seeking to maximise our agency. And we often underestimate how much that affects others. So there's a well-documented uh, um, theory called the three degrees of separation theory, which is that things we do have a surprising influence, even on people who are separated from us by three degrees.
0: One of the other things I think that's really interesting michael as well as i like, i mean you say in the book that you know you've been constantly told with you, your more sort of pioneering and radical ideas you know such as uh you know the renewable energy power desalination and irrigation and you know regeneration of, of desert lands and um y- you know it's like when the people say that the market is not ready for your ideas
3: mm-hmm.
0: how, how, how do you begin to tackle that Where we've still got that sort of Blind mindset where the the market is never going to be ready for what needs yeah. to be done.
3: Yeah, well, um, as you can probably tell, that's, that's been quite painful for me because yeah. you know when when I set up my co- my company exploration, I was convinced that what we what we needed was more positive advocacy and positive exemplars, and and that what would happen would be, be that we would just get this sort of rolling wave of change because the the benefits would be so obvious. And uh, after 11 years of, of doing that, working with great teams, working really hard on becoming a better public speaker and building my network and so on, I came to the conclusion that that was never going to be enough. And, and I, I consigned 11 years' work to the dustbin and concluded that only um, systems change is going to uh, deliver what we need. And there was no point in me just kind of banging my head against the wall trying to create more exemplars if if the, uh, the the system was was flawed. And so that's why I embarked on two new collaborations. One was the, the book with Sarah Ichioko, uh, Flourish, and the other, very much the same time, was uh, Architects Declare a Climate and Biodiversity Emergency. So shortly after that 2018 IPCC report, I met up with an old friend of mine, Steve Tompkins. He's he's a very accomplished architect, and we were talking about why there um, there'd been so little response from the architectural community. And and you know we had a rather sort of gloomy few pints in the pub, and and then we were talking about where each of us had agency, and we were talking about Donella Meadows and so on. And the idea emerged um, mainly because Steve's practice had recently won the Sterling Prize, which is one of the, the highest uh, prizes um, for architects uh, in the UK. And so an idea emerged of, of getting all the uh, Sterling Prize winners to make a joint declaration. And Steve did a lot of the legwork on this together with Caroline Cole. And um, as, as time went on, it became clear that the way to label this was as a declaration of climate and biodiversity emergency. So so we launched it, and we thought we'd have to work really hard to get maybe 50 practices signed up so that we could then go to our institution and persuade them to declare an emergency. We actually had 200 firms in the first two days, and, and then signing up to this declaration of action, that is. Um, and then we deliberately set it up to to decentralize it, to make it as easy as possible for other disciplines and other countries to uh, do the same. And so now it has spread to 28 countries and we've got over 7,000 companies signed up to this declaration of action. And in the UK, we've actually got a lot of different disciplines. So there's structural engineers, civil engineers, landscape architects, project managers, um, et cetera, et
0: Because when, you know, I mean, you've, you've famously been very critical of like the new Bloomberg HQ in London, haven't you, which is held up as this sort of supposed icon of you know sustainable architecture and building design but i mean it's it's so flawed isn't it it's perhaps the you know it's it's an exemplar for all the wrong reasons and yet it's lauded. yes and i mean i
3: i I think it's clear that even the architects themselves are uncomfortable with with the conclusions they drew from it because by their own admission if all new buildings were built that way that would lead to a three degree temperature (sighs) And, and yet this was a building that was claimed to be the most sustainable building ever with a, a very wealthy uh, client and a hugely philanthropic client, Michael Bloomberg. And so it was clear to Sarah and I that, you know, if that is the literally the best that sustainability can do, then it is clearly deeply flawed as a paradigm. And, and we need to urgently move from sustainable design into regenerative design.
1: How do how do these things look then? I'm thinking of myself as the listener, and the, and the most excited I've sort of been is when you talk about the, these new cities and things like that. Is it worth now going into what to people like me who who don't know a lot about you know it, it's new to me to to consider the built world rather than just buildings uh, having evolved from architecture? So
3: yeah, so I find one of the most compelling visions for this comes from. Dana Baumeister and Janine Benews. So they established a a company practice called um, Biomimicry 3.8. And what they argue is that when you're designing a new building or a new piece of city, what you should do is you should start by analyzing how a pristine ecosystem in that part of the world would function. How much water would it filter? How much oxygen would it produce? How much carbon would it sequester? Uh, How much... Wildlife would it accommodate, how much food would it produce, and so on? And those should become the metrics for your new piece of city. And that is way beyond where we are currently with building rating systems like Lead and Briam and so on. But I think it's it's clear that that if we were to get to that point, then we could reasonably argue that we have integrated that piece of city into a broader, uh, stable system. And encouragingly, there, there are enough examples of projects that do little bits of that. There aren't many or possibly any really comprehensively regenerative projects yet, I don't think. But there are plenty that do bits of that. So for instance, in Seoul in South Korea, the mayor uh, of South Korea at the time persuaded people to tear down this, this 10-lane elevated motorway that was built above a, a river called the Cheonggyecheon River. And uh, turned it into this beautiful linear park, which has improved um, people's uh, kind of well-being. It's even reduced the temperatures in that part of the city in the summer by something like five degrees C. Wow. Um, And increasingly, we're seeing buildings that actually accommodate a lot of vegetation. There are some really kind of mistaken ones, I think, that, that have trees at, you know, 40 meters up in the air and so on. So I'm not necessarily advocating that. But I think there is a... A really good case for integrating more nature into buildings, partly for the the psychological benefits, partly for the microclimatic benefits, because it it, uh, cools and humidifies um, the the local area. And also for the biodiversity benefits, because it provides masses of habitat for plants and animals in cities.
1: I've learned from Mark and Ed never never to be too harsh in asking for timelines and what the future will look like but when you said there are no projects at the moment that that encompass that entire view you you talk about of what would nature do in this situation
3: are are we close to that um well i mean that's that's why i think we need to bring about a a tipping point because it's it's just kind of insane that we have all these solutions and yet it's not happening at anywhere near the speed that it needs to be. You know, another really key solution uh, is is looking at cities like ecosystems. So getting all the the resource flows to connect up in the same way that zero waste ecosystems operate. And that's a, a very underexplored aspect of the circular economy at the moment. And one of the things that I'm sure you all and I find frustrating, is that so many of these solutions have been around for ages. Mm. You know, Herman Daly established ecological economics 50 years ago. Walter Stahl articulated the circular economy 40 years ago and so on. So we need to bring about this kind of release phase in a way, a tipping point, so that human ingenuity can be unleashed. And, and these ideas that have been around and have been tested enough to be sure that they work can be
0: implemented at scale and at speed. Yeah, I mean, and you, you conclude the book with a, bit, a really interesting discussion on, on growth because we've obviously touched on, you know, donor economics with Kate Rayworth, you know, and we, and we talked about some of the sort of the mindlessness of this, you know, infinite growth mindset. Um, but there's a great line you use, which is like moving from a flow of wealth, which is what we essentially have at the moment, don't we? And it, which, which mm-hmm. is not even trickle down, it's basically flood up growth um to a wealth of flows and i think that's really what it, what you're alluding to isn't it it's like how do we have uh, the right type of growth that fits in with that nourishing and enriching regenerative type of approach
3: yeah that, that is a good line it's actually ken webster's line is so it? he's, he's a, a circular economy guru yeah so the, the there are projects that have explored this this idea of, of ecosystems models where you do Get exactly that. So there's one that it's quite a quirky one that I've talked about and, and I mentioned in my TED talk. It's called the Cardboard to Caviar Project, where this guy Graham Wiles set up a, a system that was shredding cardboard and um, turning it through a series of stages into caviar, which he sold back to, to the restaurants. And actually, there's a, a much richer story to that because it became this kind of growing system of land uses and and activities that were transforming waste into value, as well as regenerating the landscape, providing opportunities for people, and in his own way, providing really quite a radical new model so that uh, our... Societies and communities don't have to have this sort of linear flow of resources and finances ending up in landfill or finance in the hands of a very uh, limited number of the the very rich. They could become this much more um, richly interconnected system where you get this this wealth of of flows. And we we steadily move towards zero waste and high productivity and um, abundant restored wildlife.
0: You're going to have to do a little bit of a reveal on that one, because I, I know everyone is going to be thinking, like, how the hell do you turn cardboard into caviar? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah,
3: well, so it started off, it, it was it was just um, an initiative involving people with disabilities in a recycling project. So they were collecting cardboard from shops and restaurants, shredding it and selling it to equestrian centers as horse bedding. And then... The, uh, the, the horsey people said, all right, well, what do we do with all this um, manure and um, and cardboard waste? So Graham Wall said, well, l- leave it with me. I'll, I'll have a think. And his first idea was to set up a, a wormery composting system to produce worms to sell to anglers. So he did that. And then at the 11th hour, the um, angling uh, buyer or whatever backed out of the deal. I don't know what had happened. The global worm market collapsed or something. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, Graham said, all right, well, it's not that. I'm going to cut out the middle man. I'm going to set up my own fish farm. So he started uh, raising sturgeon and feeding them uh, with worms from from the compost. And then eventually they produced caviar, which he he sold back to the restaurants. And he actually carried on adding more and more elements to that system and involving other partly marginalized groups. So for instance, he, he, um, he worked with teenagers that uh, were on drug rehab schemes that previously had a, a failure rate of something like 95% and were hugely expensive. Each one was costing the local authorities something like £100,000 per addict per year. Graham involved them in this project and, and achieved about an 80% success rate of getting them off drugs. And um, he, he got them planting uh, trees and, and vegetables so they could produce fish food to supplement the the worms. They set up a um, a willow coppice on restored industrial land using treated fertilizer from the nearby waterworks, uh, which restored that land. They planted more orchards. So there were more and more products to sell back to the the restaurants. They rethought the the water treatment system. So they used um, watercress and other salad crops to take the excess nutrients out of the the fish water so it, it just turned into this kind of growing system and and the more it grew the, the more the potential seemed to increase the more diverse and the more abundant it became
0: and that, I mean, that's just an extraordinary story isn't it because it's like it's like repeatedly saying something that john alexander said in our citizens episode it's like if everyone just approached all of these challenges with a yes and type of mindset. So every time, you know, they're hitting a stumbling block or, or an issue in that sort of chain of projects, you know, it's a yes and mentality, which has then added another element into that system, isn't it? It,
3: it is, absolutely. Um, and people might be wondering, well, what, what happened to this project? And and it became the, the victim of, of a very limited uh, perspective on economics uh, because their funding was cut and... A, a local politician say, came on a tour of this site and um, said, well, you know, you're, you're not producing fish as cheaply as the, the fish farm down the road, so, you know, it doesn't make economic sense. And, it, it, you know, it, it, that kind of view is enough to make you despair. But <laughs> rather than despair, maybe we can we can come back to talking about the, the growth debate because what we conclude in our book is that we need a, a much deeper and more meaningful purpose for our economies. And, and we suggest that, that a better, much better purpose would be the maximisation of planetary health. Mm. So, you know, the growth as, as a purpose is ridiculous. And even degrowth, I don't find a satisfying purpose. I mean, it's important. Uh, there are lots of things about the degrowth um, thesis that I think are really interesting. But as a, as a kind of guiding star for our countries and economies... I think planetary health is, is 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 way more inspiring.
1: When you talk about this complete system that can root from one project, I know you were involved in the Eden Project in Cornwall, and they are now planning a, a sort of twin, a partner project in Morecambe where, where I grew up. I'd love to hear that you were involved in that, because that is a a town in in a community that has so many different needs that could be served by this one building, which in itself could be a a sort of instigator for change i'd love to hear you were involved
3: i am not uh, but (laughs) tim schmidt is involved and and he he is a really inspiring change maker you know one of the things tim used to do was he had this idea called the telling of future truths uh which some might find uncomfortable but um essentially what he did is that he would say things that weren't true when he said them but by saying them persuasively enough and getting enough other people to believe in them, they became true. And that is an important way in which change happens. And I think I've seen those things written on the side of buses before. (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah all right well it can be misused <laughs> I mean this is
2: certainly something that Ed and I use in, in our work in that often you will say something is happening so that other people will believe in it even if it hasn't happened yet in fact very famously this is how um, Bob Geldof got Live Aid together yeah. he told a whole bunch of bands that other bands were already had agreed to play who hadn't and then and they said well if the air playing will play and then he went back to the original band and said, well, they've said they're playing now. And that's how he got to such an amazing roster. So it is a it is a very legitimate technique. It has to be used wisely, I think. But certainly um, I've had no problem saying that things are already real in order to get people to believe in them um, if I think they're the right thing to do. And and, and that gives, actually gives people hope. They go, oh, it's happening. So they can, they can be hopeful.
3: I tend not to use the word hopeful, because I I, I don't know why um, I have a bit of a problem with hope. It feels too disengaged somehow. I, I, I you know, I think we need to be determined. And there are a couple of dimensions to what you were talking about there, Mark, in your question. So you know one is that we we do need to think carefully about frames and, and that is a part of, of moving on and believing in change. So you know for instance, um, we've we've heard the, the idea time is money. Uh, so it's been repeated so often that um, some people would regard it as a kind of undeniable reality. And it takes someone as inspiring as Team as from the Bhutan Gross National Happiness Project to put forward a completely different story, which is time is life. And if you think for a moment about the kind of behaviors that emerge from those, those frames, they're dramatically different. So a company or a country that believes in the story that time is money would re- think it's perfectly normal to quantify and, and exploit people. Whereas someone, a company or, or a country that believe time is life would be far more likely to uh, be respectful of people that would want to uh, create good living conditions. And an individual who holds a view that time is life is quite likely to think more deeply about how they're going to spend their their, t- their precious time on Earth. But coming on to you know how how do we bring this about? Uh, I think we we need to kind of build big coalitions, really demanding systemic change. And at the moment, I I do think it's encouraging the number of different organisations that have uh, declared a, a, a climate and biodiversity emergency. Um, and of course, that's only the first step. Um, it has to be followed up with action, and a lot of them are. So I'm, I'm referring to groups like architects declare, culture declares, music declares, business declares, and so on. And we now have, I think, two thirds, more than two thirds, of the local authorities in the UK that have declared a similar emergency. Obviously, they're getting crit- a lot of them are getting criticised for not doing enough, but it, it is at least a bold step to to say that's what you're going to do and, and open yourself up to criticism. But what we need now i think is a is a broad coalition that calls for for pretty big systemic change so i'm thinking of things like a, a demand for donut economics for a future generations bill for a law of ecocide and and potentially even for the uk to join with scotland iceland and new zealand in the the, the well-being um, government's organisation i think it's called wego uh, i i would actually love to see that kind of slightly rebranded as the the planetary health governments and in in time I would hope that there would be the the p20 that would start to make the the g20 look thoroughly out of date uh, because the the g20 are just glorifying a, a thoroughly outdated paradigm of, of GDP growth whereas the p20 would be pushing a, a much more holistic paradigm of planetary health and what I mean by that is is a a growing consensus that we simply cannot separate human health human health, from the health of the ecosystems and life support systems on which we depend. So our, our well-being and our future depend on planetary health. And, and you don't need to be a genius or a rocket scientist or even an ecologist to understand that, surely. It's also... Um...
1: It's also depressingly logical and obvious when you hear it said,
3: realize <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've never heard it said before. I, I, I thought you were going to say the opposite. I thought you were going to say, "Oh my God, Michael, the future's so bright, I need shades."
1: No, it, well, I mean, it—it's it, well, exactly what you you, you say, and I, you know, I—I I liked what you said about hope almost being sort of too passive. And um, but it, it, you know, when you talk about these systems and the way you just you think, well, it should have always been this way. Surely we exist on a planet that existed long before us and knows what it's doing. So why wouldn't you choose to learn lessons from that? But anyway, it's, <laughs> it's what we say every episode, isn't it? It's why we have these guests on.
0: You've got to remember, John, that Michael spent 20 years trying to articulate this. So, um... I know, well,
1: I'm always in awe of our guests and how how you all, and I include you, uh, Ed and Mark, in this as well, that you you have these conversations. And I guess you you define yourselves by the progress that you're able to make, the concrete progress, if you'll pardon the pun, when we're talking about building, and you know the, the belief in the people around you to make change. But I, there must be days when you're just infuriated by how, how clear it seems and how, how obvious these changes are and how hard <laughs> they are to bring about. Yeah, just in terms yeah of definitely. Which, is right, which
0: is why right. it's amazing that Michael hasn't sworn... <laughs>
3: well, I think it's more that you've used your quota, I imagine. <laughs> yes, howling into my pillow. There's a, there's a German word I like. Um, it, it's called Weltschmerz. Um, and the, the literal translation of that is world pain. But it actually has a, a really amazing and very specific meaning, which, which is the, the pain you feel when you compare reality with what you know in your heart is possible, I find that time and again with clients, Mm. you know, I'm able to lead teams with clients to, to, uh, to kind of set out a a brilliant vision. Uh, And I I choose people in teams who who are theoretical as well as practical. So these aren't wildly unachievable visions. They're completely practical and achievable stretching visions that would, would really transform things. And so often, the client gets to a point where they say, uh, no, I think we're going to just stick to businesses <laughs> quite close to normal. <laughs> I and, mean, you yeah, you just want to scream at them. and mm. Don't you sometimes worry about what your kids are going to ask you in 20 years? Mm. The, you know, the, the, that classic um, line from the, the poet. Sorry, I've forgotten the poet's name, but Spiral Staircase, which is, you know, what did you do when you knew? That's a really, really haunting question.
0: Oh, it's uh, Drew Dellinger. That's it. Hey, can I
3: ask you guys a question?
0: Yeah, by all means.
3: It seems like you've got very active listeners and and they they often write in um, very nice emails by the sound of things. What have been the most um, energizing and um, encouraging things that you've heard people have done as a result of your podcast?
0: Oh, I mean, there's quite a range of stuff. I mean, you you get the ones where, as John said, you know, people just going, you've, You've pulled the wool away from my eyes. You know I can see things really clearly. We've had people change jobs. You know, change careers. Uh, We've had people want to instigate projects. I mean, just this week we got sent a political manifesto, (laughs) which had about um, twenty key points um, of what they thought you know could be done to reboot the system. Um, So it's is everything from the sort of small individual behaviours. Um, and changes in people making in their day-to-day lives to people genuinely, you know, doing that thing that you said, you know, thinking of themselves less as individuals um, and wanting to connect and collaborate locally to to people starting new businesses. I mean, you know, I, I think... We, we do provide a provocation, hopefully, which enables people to sit to become possibilists, You know, oh, in, absolutely in, in your in your language, and I think that's the that's the really energising bit. You know, we certainly don't do the podcast for the money; we do it for the love um, and the camaraderie and that connection with people that you know might might become activated.
3: That's fantastic. Uh, you know, you, you you've been brilliant at uh, spreading ideas and promoting really positive conversations. So. Uh... Anyway. Well,
0: I think it's, it's the ability to have those conversations, you know, podcasts in the long form enables mm-hmm. you more space to get into the detail, you know, in an era yeah. of the media sound bites, You know, when we all know when we've done media slots, you know, when you've got literally 90 seconds to get your point across. Um, <laughs> and so we want to have those those bigger conversations which allow people to get into the, the nuance and the detail, but also, that, you know, the, the wealth of riches, which, yeah. which sits there unvocalized.
3: I had a, an email from someone that read Sarah's and, and my book, um, and he said, "You effer, you've effed with my head and forced me to rethink everything from the first <laughs> effing principles." <laughs>
0: oh, well, that, that was quite good. No, but that's but that's exactly it, isn't it? As you say, it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, yeah. and, and you know what we want. What we want is for everyone to un, to to be, not be able to unsee it. I bet you are having
3: far more influence than uh, you realise.
2: Well, it's very kind of you to say. We certainly do get a lot of feedback from listeners saying that we have changed the way they think about things. Uh, People have changed careers, uh, changed the way they've related to their their families and whatever because of the podcast. So... um, I guess, I guess we do have an influence, but of course, we, we don't know that. Sometimes it just feels like we're screaming into the void. Um, but um, yeah, and, and, but that influence is because of, of, of guests like yourself. So uh, thank you once again for, for, for being on the show.
1: So Michael, it's been exactly where um, this podcast thrives, I think. It's just in equal measure sort of fascinating and encouraging and uh, inspiring. I think it's one of those, more than any I can think of, where when we release this podcast we're going to get a deluge of emails from listeners because we do get a lot of, when we get suggestions for topics, there's so much about city systems and construction and things like that. So it might be that if you if you spare us the time again, perhaps further down the line, we, we could put some of those listener questions to you because I know there'll be a lot of people who wanted the conversation to fragment off in directions that... Um, we weren't able to take it in today, but... Yeah,
2: sure. I'd
3: be deli- absolutely delighted. Well,
1: Michael, I think it's time we, we let you go. Um,
2: thank you so much for being on the show. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure.
1: So there we go. With usual, thanks to uh, our esteemed guests. We've had some belters uh, this series, Michael Paulin, no exception. What are your
0: thoughts, uh, having having listened back, Ed? I don't know. Well, I mean, apart from the richness of the conversation, but I mean, what Michael was saying about the reform pathway being the scariest, the fact that, you know, this sort of marginal incrementalism is is part of the real problem. And I was really struck by... You know, his description of systems thinking is about the relationships between all things, not just about things uh, like carbon. So I I, I think, you know, that systemic approach is absolutely fundamental. And I love I love that idea of symbiogenesis, you know, of growing together, because um, I think what we're stuck with at the moment is the absolute poverty of imagination you know, when you get an energy windfall tax from the government, uh, and we give 400 quid to every household, imagine if you'd hypothecated that onto every household having to invest 400 quid into community renewables, and you would have kickstarted, you know, participatory democratized, you know, renewable energy system in which we were all participants and co-owners. So I think that there's really enormous stuff around that. And then I always love, uh, you know, a German compound noun. So when he was talking about weltschmerz at the end, you know, the sort of, pain of the possible um, and and feeling like he's screaming into the void. And it, it flips into something that I often talk about, which is Blick Vendung, which is this radical shift in perspective. Because right now, it feels like there's a whole bunch of people who are leading us who Need a bit of backpfeifengesicht, which is uh, 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 being in possession of a face badly in need of a fist. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> like you look at every time you switch on the news, it's like, ah, backpfeifengesicht.
1: Uh, German and Jamaican slang from Ed this week. A lot geez. of pressure on you, Mark here.
0: Well,
2: my immediate reaction to that is the Welch Smirch is, in fact, the final album by uh, Fish, and lead <laughs> singer of Marillion um is uh, it? yeah yeah it's just uh <laughs> he's just his final uh, album He's retiring and uh, uh yeah so uh, he finished so he, on the pain of the possible he finished on the pain of the possible which is exactly i guess a very good description of what it's like to be in a pro- ro- prog rock band
0: um, i'm going to come up with a german title for your third album <laughs> yes um uh, <laughs> what does that mean it means a face badly in need of a fist <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> I,
2: I think that, uh, that's not a bad title. And if we could, could we put your picture on the cover? Yeah, exactly.
0: But-
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, are we going to series four? Yeah, I think so. Um, we can sort of agree now, or we can put it to the listener. I mean, there's always a risk, of course. <laughs> you, say uh, the
0: listener, <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. That, do you want can... me to text
0: my mum now, or just, just see what she says? No, we should have a moment. We have pipped a million downloads, we have.
2: Yes and we we we're searching for 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 listener questions aren't we we want we want you to to ask us yes. what you want to ask us and we will attempt to answer it on the show
1: so and this uh, the, the series 4 won't be as sort of tantric as this one will it? there's a bit, there's been a real pause uh, here for sort of delayed gratification but we won't do that again will we that was a you know an exceptional circumstance
2: it was well yeah basically because you're so bloody famous that's the problem you you, yeah, got, but, um, you got so busy that you literally didn't have a moment because of all your celebrity endorsements and the fact that everybody wants you on TV now because Meet the Richters has been the biggest comedy T V launch in years and you're going on tour and everybody's really hungry to see you and, and you know, and you're a parent and you're also, you know, doing lots of good stuff in the background.
1: You just you're just too good. I'm not slagging off I T V to their faces, put it that way. <laughs> Uh, thank you for joining us. As uh, as uh, Mark mentioned there, Series 4 is, is going to revolve a lot more around your questions and direct input. So if you'd like to get in touch with us on what you've just heard with Michael, on what you've heard at any point, I know a lot of people join the podcast late and go back and binge earlier episodes, or you want to get ahead and ask them questions for Series 4, then here's how you can reach us. You can reach us by email at hello at johnandthefuturenauts.com. That's hello at John, J-O-N, and the futurenaughts, all one word, dot com. We have our own show Twitter account, which is at J and the F. And of course, you can reach us individually on Twitter too. I am at Ron Richardson, John Richardson with the first letters swapped around. That's what I've done there. And you can reach Ed and Mark at the following. I'm Ed Gillespie at Frucall, which is at F-R-U-C-O-O-L.
2: And I'm Mark Stevenson, and you can find me at Optimist on Tour.
1: Thank you, gentlemen. It's a delight to be back. Stay well. I'll see you in three months. Uh, can you make it a bit longer? <laughs> <laughs> Prog to the very end. Yes. See you mm-hmm. later, everyone. Lovely to be
2: back. Lovely to be with you all. And uh, we look forward to Series 4. Series 4.